Hey, good morning, good morning. All righty, everybody, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. Sound good? Okie dokie, let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for a cool morning. Um, thank you uh, for the respite from the heat. God, thank you that we get to be together and to open up your word. Please guide our study. Um, be with us as you've always been with us, as you always will be with us. Lord, we're grateful. And it is in and through your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, folks. Um, we've got some new people with us, which is awesome. Um, but let's go ahead and quick recap on what we've studied so far, because we are still not out of chapter one, which is great. Uh, of the book of Acts. So, can anyone tell me what we've gone up to? What have we seen so far in the book of Acts? Really one big thing. Yeah. Anybody? So, we, we, had, we had Luke's introduction to Theophilus, right? Lover of God or God's love. And then we had uh, the teaching about the kingdom of heaven for 40 days, right? And maybe 40 full days, maybe not, just a good little bit of time for something to become normal. Uh, and then we had a big thing that happened called the... There it is, thank you. The ascension. Yes, the ascension, wherein Jesus uh, went up. And we then we had the, um, the two white-robed figures saying, what are you doing? We got other stuff going on. We can't just sit here. And we had a great conversation uh, last week about why it is important that we can't just sit in these meaningful moments and these great, beautiful things that happen that we're, there is more work to do. Um, and then uh, we get to um, uh, Matthias chosen to replace Jesus. We're in Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. Oh, and then the other thing, we are looking at our structure that we have set up for the book of Acts is we're looking at it a lot like a symphony, right? And so because the book of Acts really gets to show us what's called the multivocality of scripture, so it's a lot of different voices coming together to make one story, we're seeing it like a symphony where there are lots of instruments used to make one thing. And right now we're in the prelude. The prelude is in a symphony, the thing that sets up so many of the themes that will come back around in the first, second, third movement. And so the prelude, uh, you will be my witnesses, we're looking at Acts 1.8 as our uh, kind of programmatic thesis. So this is what's setting up our structure of the book. So you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so prelude here, and then our first movement is Jerusalem and Judea. Second movement is Samaria. Third movement is to the ends of the earth. And we'll have an interlude, uh, Acts 15, around the Jerusalem Council. Um, and then a postlude to kind of take us all out of the book in uh, 27, 28. So um, that's where we are. Any questions before we get started? I want to make sure that we're all feeling like we're caught up to speed. All good? Okay, excellent. So uh, Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14. Uh, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, with certain women. We are currently in the upper room, uh, potentially the same upper room that was the place where the Last Supper was held uh, before Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Um, this was uh, 
some reading I did this week uh, was saying that this is likely a place that only kind of the wealthy upper crust had access to. And so these certain women, um, we discussed a little bit last week how these were likely um, the same women who were with Jesus from his entire, his entire ministry, who likely bankrolled his whole ministry. And these we see um, in Luke 8, um, who were Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Herod Stuart, Husa, and Susanna. Um, and so these were sometimes wealthy women who were able to help fund this. So we've got our 11 disciples. Um, we are understanding that we are missing one, right? And we are missing one who is Judas himself. Matthias chosen to replace Judas. So we are in verse 15. Does anyone want to read this so that it's not just me talking up here? Go for it. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. It was a nice rest. Um, before we get into what I have, what do we see here? Well, Luke wasn't bitter at all, was he? Not even a little, clearly. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Um, so one of the things that we see in a lot of first century literature is that the wicked get there, <laughs> what is coming to them. And so, yeah, this whole section here where it's like, that is graphic. Uh, why so graphic? Um, oh, no, no, no. Um, uh, so graphic because it was important for the first century readers to understand that there were real-life consequences, right? They wanted, um, especially for people who were coming from sort of this... Uh, from the law, right, from the Jewish system. And one of the things we talked about is Christianity was Jewish. It came out of Judaism. In this time, it was not seen as something at all separate from Judaism. It was a sect of Judaism. It's why they worshipped in the temple. It's why all these things happened there. But coming out of this, it was still sort of like, oh, man, we got to have the wicked get their just desserts. We need them to actually suffer for the things that they caused. And so Judas the one who, uh, the reward of his wickedness, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It's a lot. So, uh, anything else we see here? Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, I actually, oh, I should have had a... It, <laughs> well, it's... Yeah, it was a big, big... It's a big spot. Like, 120 is... Uh, it is what is considered the upper room today. Um, I was able to see it when I was in Jerusalem in January. And it's not, it is probably roughly the size of this room. And so 120 people is still like, oh, it's a crowd. We got a crowd in here, you know? Uh, but it's still, um, 
So this 120, that's actually interesting. There's some Jewish traditions that say um, 120 people were the ones who uh, received the, um, the Torah. And so there's, a, there's some connections there. There's some parallels there. And then 120, 10 people for 12, right? The 12 disciples, the 12 tribes of Israel. There's some connections there, some parallels. I wouldn't put so much stock in it, but 120, there's something. So um, anything else that we see? Yeah. Golgotha? Yeah. The place of the skull. Yeah. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't. I don't actually know. Maybe it was because there were landmarks that everyone could see. Um, I don't. I don't honestly know why, but. We do have this, so, um, but we have, let's see, what else, what did I put here? Um, 120 persons. So this is interesting. In those days, which those days, that doesn't give us much of a time frame, right? We're coming off of the ascension. We understand in our tradition that it is 40, 50 days after um, the, uh, the resurrection, so it could be any time then. But in those days, non-specific, Peter stood up among them, 120 persons. Peter shows up as the spokesperson for the group and speaks following Jesus' command to him. So if we look back in Luke, the end of Luke, we see him say, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, but you, once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So this was after, this was after Peter's, or this was before Peter's betrayal and his denouncement of Christ three times. And Jesus, knowing this was going to happen, it's almost became a proving ground of faith. So once this happened, he actually took up his mantle as the spokesperson. He became the one who would strengthen his brothers. And he stood up and he spoke what he said. So, And then the 120 shows that this community was already quite strong and beyond Jesus' immediate circle. So it's easy to think in when we read the Gospels that the 12 were just the folks who were those were the only people that Jesus was with. And to some extent, yes, but there was a large following around Jesus already. The 12 were just sort of the inner circle. And then there was the three, then there was the beloved disciple, right? And so they're radiating out. We have this huge group of people who were already following Jesus. Um, and then the scripture had to be fulfilled. So this is interesting. So we talked about how... Um, one of the big themes in the book of Acts was the crucifixion, right? And how Peter will interpret it differently than Paul, and Luke will interpret it differently than all of them kind of together, and part of this multivocality, the symphony in the scriptures. So Peter links the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus to the foretelling of scripture, which we see again and again and again when Peter's giving his speeches. Um, so Luke 24, 26, 27, that's, he puts that in there as well. Um, and he also links the betrayal and death of Judas to the foretelling of Scripture. Does anyone remember one of the big themes that we talked about um, at the beginning where the Old Testament uh, showing up in, um, in Acts? It's a fulfillment of whose hopes? Does anyone remember? That's totally fine. I don't expect this. Um, 
the it's a linking it is a fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes so one of the things that we're used that we see he's going to quote from two different psalms coming up and he's going to interpret them as a fulfillment of the scriptures so to understand what's going on in acts we have to have a good understanding either ourselves or that they had a great and really kind of total understanding of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what we call it, and to understand that they see the things that are happening as relating back to and fulfilling what has come before in their scriptures. So we've got two Psalms that are going to come up. Um, and that also brings us to the theme of God's sovereignty versus the free choice of man. If he links the betrayal and death of Judas to the foretelling in scripture, how is this Judas's free choice, right? And that's a question that is tough to deal with, honestly. Um, and I think we talked about it a little bit, but I personally subscribe to, and I think that the book of Acts really does do a good job of putting forth this idea of non-competition between the will of God and the choice of man. That somehow, some way, they are linked together, but they are one is not necessarily dependent on the other, if that makes sense. And we will come to that more when we get to Acts 2. Uh, so, verse 19, Hakeldama, that is field of blood. Um, Matthew and Luke both associate Judas. We can see it in Luke. He does already talk about the field of blood, um, and they both identify it as the field of blood. This is where it gets uh, really kind of interesting. So, Hakeldama is an, um, is an Aramaic phrase. Do we remember what language the original Acts was written in? It was Greek. Yes. So he uses an Aramaic word, something completely different, uh, and he's translating for his Greek-speaking audience. So we talked about a little bit how this was written to a people who could read Greek, right, or at least had an understanding of it. So he's writing to a group of people who were likely not already Jewish. Not saying that they weren't. There were lots of learned and educated Jewish people who could read and speak Greek, but the spoken language was Aramaic, right? And so that gives us a pretty good clue as to who, it's what we call an intertextual clue, as to who this was written for and to, which is a group of Greek-speaking people. There it is. So this is... From Jerusalem. This is so fun. I get to. I was very glad that I got to bring this up. So this is what's interesting. This is Jerusalem. This is in. This is facing the West Bank, um, in Jerusalem. I I took this while we were standing at the place where um, it is pretty commonly thought. I forget what the name of the church is, but it's the place where Peter is thought to have denied Jesus and where the cock crowed three times. And over here, you can see. This is the field of blood. This is the place wherein Judas uh, bought the land and died. Um, and then we're going to zoom in. This is um, it's a series of tombs and caves that have been set up since then. Um, but there's also, and I don't think I added a picture, but over here, if it were zoomed out, there's actually a monastery um, here that is set up near the field of blood. Um, but this was the place, and I think it's sort of interesting, and I don't know if it has any real meaning, but thematically, that you can see the field of blood from the place where Peter denied. 
What do you all think about that? Like, that you, I'm standing where I took this picture in the place where Peter denied, right? Where Peter denied Jesus three times, and then the cock crowed, and he understood, oh no, I messed up. And from that place, and granted, Jerusalem's a small city, right? And so you can see a lot of places from a lot of places. But I think it's interesting thematically that you can see the place where, like the, what is this, what does it say? The, um, uh, the reward of Judas's wickedness. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's interesting that you can see the place where Peter betrayed or you can see the place where Judas betrayed from the place where Peter denied. And it's almost like you see two different, there are two sides of, two options, two stories of people who did deny and two stories of what could happen. You could either have the church built in your memory or a series of tombs and the field of blood. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Truly. That's really great. Yeah. Oh, four or five thousand years old, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, truly. You can see that some people will live there, like there's refugees and stuff who will sometimes encamp there, but it's no one has developed this. Like, this is still <laughs> just what it is. And you can see there's like water jugs and stuff down here, um, but that's it's a place where people who have nowhere to go, nowhere else to go, will go. Um, but I think it is interesting that there's that I no one has developed so Jerusalem. Yeah. Oh I yes. Never... Oh yeah. I mean that's one of the things where um, often when they say they'll go up to something or somewhere, it can mean north, but it can also just mean physically up. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, yeah, it is incredibly, incredibly hilly. And Jerusalem was is built on on this hill, and so like there's you can drive all around the old city. Um, and you can see the Western Wall. You can see all of these things that are just in Jerusalem. And so it's actually, if we go back, like I'm here standing on top, down into a valley, up to the field of blood. And um, yeah, it's a very, very hilly place. But I really love the everything's so close together. It's a really fine line that can be walked, right? Very lovely. Good reflection. <laughs> Anybody else see anything? Um, so, uh, we are at verse 20. Um, can someone go ahead and read verse 20 for me? Yes. Yes. So that's verse 20 and we are, um, Still talking about Judas, right? Hakaldama comes right before this. So we see that Peter's allusions to the book, um, to the Psalms, come from Psalm 69, 25 and 109, verse 8. And did I put them up here? Um, well, he uses the LXX or the Septuagint. So let's get into it. The Septuagint is, does anyone know what the Septuagint is before I do this? So it was the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. It was, and it was composed and kind of put together in this intertestamental period. So after uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have 400 years of silence, right? 400 years of silence. And then that's called the intertestamental period. And there's, that's when we have really no record in the canonical books, 
there's in the Apocrypha there's stuff, but then we get to Mark and the Gospels. So in this 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, we end up with um, a translation of the Hebrew Bible called the um, uh, the Septuagint or the LXX because, as tradition goes, LXX 70, right? 70 people did the translating, did the receiving of that. Um, another intertextual clue is to the audience for Acts. A lot of times in the, in the New Testament when they're quoting the Old Testament, they'll do it from the Septuagint. They'll do it from the Greek. And so another intertextual clue is to the audience. Um, now, this is what's interesting. We often see the Psalms as poetry, right? Because they are. But Peter seems to be interpreting this as a form of prophecy, right? As a form of, let his house become desolate and let there be no one to live in it. Let another person take his position of overseer. What do we do when we see parts of the Bible seeming to use other parts of the Bible that don't, that aren't, seem to be taking it out of context, right? Because contextually speaking, we talked a ton about context before we started this, right? About how you have to understand the genre, about how you have to really understand what's going on, to interpret it by its own rules, to do all these things. When when Peter takes what is always understood, even by them, as poetry and interprets it as a form of prophecy or a fulfillment. Yes? Interesting. Interesting. I like that take. Yes. <laughs> no, truly. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. People are still doing that years. Yeah. Using the Bible to to make their, you know, to support their own conclusions. Yes. Peter's just starting to I like that. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that goes back. Absolutely. I think that goes back to what Thomas was saying as well, that it's easy to remember. And because like we talk about in our liturgy, right, that we pray not only with our lips, but with our very lives, that um, that the liturgy, we don't just do the liturgy. The liturgy changes us. And it like when it, you, you know that when you've been here long enough, you start to, you know what's coming, right, in the liturgy. And there are some times where like words of the liturgy will come to you unbidden and you're like, well, what is that about? <laughs> like, I wasn't thinking about this and somehow it does have something to do with what's going on. When you dwell with something long enough, it does get deep into your bones and you start to process that stuff through the stuff that's already in your head. And it's easy to remember because it is poetry. It's easy to remember, and it's already, because it was an oral tradition, right, people had long portions. When we, if we ever, when we get to Paul, we'll understand that he had so much of the Hebrew Bible memorized because it was an oral tradition. And because this was, let his house become desolate, let there be no one to live in it, he sees that. He sees what happened with Judas, and he says, okay, 
Well, that sounds like this thing that I already know. That sounds like Psalm 69 or whatever it was at the time. And let one, let another take his position of overseer. Sounds like Psalm 109. This is just what it is. It's part of this deeply ingrained thing. And so when it does come to, is he quoting this out of context? Maybe by our rules. But again, we do it, and I don't take, I agree with you, but I don't take such a cynical view that people have been doing this forever, even though they have, but it's part of what it means to be someone who is deeply entrenched in the Bible, in the scriptures, in the liturgies, right? Yes. Exactly. Yes, it is. And he, he is the spokesperson for the community, right? So it's, it's them seeing this stuff together and at the same time. You were going to say something? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it might be some of that too, like needing to, at some level, um, justify what was going on, right? And having that available. So it could be all of these things. But I think, I think what comes, my, my view and interpretation is that this was just so deeply ingrained into who Peter was, into who the community was, that there was an understanding of what he was doing. Like, he didn't have to say, now everybody, if you look at Psalm 69, verse 25, you'll see what I'm saying. They knew what he was doing. They knew where he was going. They knew everything about it. So, um, that is verse 20. Uh, can anyone read 21 through 26 for me? You got it. Thank you so much. Uh, what do we see before we move into it? What did you say? A little, a little crap shoot. Yeah, truly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. What were you gonna say, Tom? So I'm not sure what they mean by the one of the men who are coming. Yeah. Yeah, I think I I think that that's what it's saying is that one of the requirements for whoever is going to fill the apostleship had to be someone who was with them the whole time, okay. which again shows us how big the community already was. That it wasn't just you know thirteen dudes trekking across, uh, you know, the ancient Near East. They were there was a large group. Yes. So it is, there's some clues as to that based on their names, um, which we'll get to in a minute. And it might be, like Luke is a master storyteller, 
we'll see over and again that he's so good at what he's doing. But I wouldn't put so much stock in the meanings behind their names because that just kind of moves them down the rung from canonical importance to just literary devices, right? And we talked about how we're going to interpret this. We're using the canonical lens, not singularly the, uh, the literary lens, right? But we do have some clues in there, and we'll get to that in a second. Anything else? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice or Eustace. It's like, oh, that's. Man. Yeah. Yeah. He's got one name. Yeah. Matthias. <laughs> I know. Didn't most people, or not most, but some people have a Hebrew name and then a Latin name? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have uh, Simon Peter, who is also called Cephas. Like, he's got three names. We've got Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also Eustace. He's got three names, and then we have Matthias, who's got the one. Yeah. Everybody pray and Yeah. Yeah, and then he's not really heard from again at all in the scriptures. Yeah. Yes. Like it's not saying that the other guy does count him. Yes. 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 Oh, I love that. Yes. This is, and one of the things I really, and this is part of what we're going to get to, but you know what? We're talking about it. So um, I have like his own place, right? Um, italicized. And so which one you have take it, to take the place? Luke is playing with this idea of place. Right, this is the same word. He's using it different ways, right? Uh, Judas's own place was Hakodama, the field of blood. But we're using to take the place in this ministry to mean a role as well. So he's doing this very interesting literary thing where he's using the same word to mean two different things. And it does uh, get us to the point of like, okay, so this is all about role. Not about, not about necessarily character or identity, or that one person is over and against another, which what does that sound like, by the way? Uh, um, but that there are different roles, different places for people. It's not, it's not that one thing is better than the other. It's simply that this ministry is for another, which does sound a whole lot like what we've got going on, right? Yes? Well, I also always read the cast lots as I'm more on the negative side of he got the first cross. These guys Interesting. live what, I mean, their life goes on. Yeah. But almost every one of those 12 yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's pretty fair, actually. <laughs> I've never thought about that. They actually, uh, the way that lots were cast was it was basically, it was sort of short straw, like a bunch of stones, differently colored and shaped stones, were put into effectively a hat or a bowl, and you threw them out, <laughs> whatever came. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> it was a fairly common way of doing things okay. in terms of like the first century. Well, the only time we heard about it in the Bible is really bad. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, yeah. So what is that? Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Uh, yeah. Puts that. Let's put that together. What does that tell us about this? I think you're right, Bob. That maybe this was like, oh shoot, oh no, nobody should want this. 
Yeah, I mean, in uh, in James, actually, that's a really great point. One of the one of the offices of the apostleship was teaching, right? That was a big part of the apostleship. It was healing. It was teaching. It was all of these things. It was, but James in chapter two or three in the book of James, uh, which was arguably one of the first books written and might have been written sometime around this time, says that like teachers will be judged more harshly. <laughs> and so like it really was not the best thing in the world to be like, oh man, okay, yeah, let me go ahead and take on this mantle. <laughs> and being raised up, it's also they proposed too. Like Joseph and your Eustace and Matthias, they didn't put themselves forward. <laughs> the community was like, what about these boys? <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> Yeah, they were voluntold. And the lot fell Yeah. Yeah, bit of a sentence actually. Um yeah, but we talked about yeah, so the requirement seems to be twofold. A man, likely a cultural thing, um, something to represent the twelve tribes, right? That was and accompanied us. Um so, again, we talked about there were more than 12 who were there. Um, oh, yeah, I already asked this question. What does this remind us of? A group of people who are following Jesus with the same fervor and tenacity, say a church, uh, but there are some who are set aside for specific ministry. We've got clergy people. We've got, the like, the altar guild. I'm not a part of the altar guild. I couldn't do it. Um, I'm not nearly good at folding. I am... <laughs> Not I am I'm not that guy. I can't be part of the flower guild. These are specific ministries that people are set aside for. There's we I think we in the Episcopal Church tend to like hierarchy a whole lot. And for good reason, sometimes it can be helpful to have that set of structure, but attaching a value to it, uh, I think we've already talked about how maybe that's not our best move. That like there really are you get voluntold. You get put forth by the community, whether you like it or not. And that's changed some, right? Like I had to put myself forward for discernment. I had to go and talk to my priest in uh, LaGrange, Texas, when I, I don't know, five, six years ago, to be like, hey, I think maybe this is something. And he was like, okay, but we do the same thing. Like in in our church, what does anyone know what the what the process by which one becomes a clergy person is called at the very start? Discernment. discernment. Yeah, it's a communal thing. Like, I could not by myself decide. I could have decided to just go to seminary. I could have decided to get my degree. I could have decided all that stuff, but I would never have been ordained just by my own choice and my own choosing. It takes a community to do this. It takes a community. I mean, we're baptizing someone this morning, right? It takes a community to baptize. Like, it's it has to be done in community because you're moving from a community to a community. You're becoming a part of God's family. This is what it is. This is the whole thing where, yes, there is a form of hierarchy, but it's not really a value judgment, or it ought not be. And that's a problem we've seen a lot in church history where we have clericalism. We have lots of people who think that they're better than simply because they have a collar, and it's not reality. That's not the reality we see in the scriptures. It seems to be truly a sentence when someone is put forth. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yikes, right? <laughs> Interesting. When you believe that the hierarchy is justly set, yeah. and then you trust the people yeah. in the hierarchy, mm-hmm. because then it's not voluntold. Yeah. Asking to participate. Mm. Yeah. But when you don't trust, then you're being voluntold. Yeah. Because you're 
That's a good way of looking at that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's part of the, I mean, I got placed here, right? I'm in, I'm in my curacy. I, I have never, I had never spent any time in Fort Worth. I'd never been to Fort Worth. I had only ever lived in Houston. Uh, and I got told by the bishop to come here. And I trust the bishop. I trust the hierarchy. And I your lot was cast. And my <laughs> lot was cast in Keller, baby. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there is that. It's not necessarily voluntold. I really like this perspective very much because it sounds it's it sounds very much like all right. Let me walk to the gallows. But it's not necessarily that. It's like you know what? No, I trust that there really is. And that's part of when we get to the the casting lots thing. The will of God and the freedom of man. So the casting lot seems to be left up to fate, right? But if you trust that there is a sovereign God who is overseeing everything, every bit of our lives, of course God has a plan. Of course God was sovereign in choosing Matthias over Eustace for whatever reason. We're not super duper told, but we do know that it happened, right? And I really like this perspective because it is a true trust in the sovereignty of God, even with this kind of casting lots, leaving it up to fate. Very. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what you're trusting. Oh, absolutely. And there are times when people don't trust that. And I'm sure that I'm like, we've heard stories of like, oh man, the bishop did not do what I thought the bishop was going to do. And maybe it turned out better. Maybe it turned out much worse. <laughs> but that's the problem with, you know, human systems and stuff. It's always going to be something like that. We are close to time. And hey, ladies and gentlemen. We got through Acts chapter 1. We did it. We did it. We did it. This is, we have a lot of, there's some stuff here. If you want to read it, we are out of time. But next week, we will start in chapter 2. I'll have some of these scripture stuff written uh, out on the tables for us. And we will see y'all next week. We did it.